Hey guys, and welcome back to So Stignatious, still the podcast where the name is made up, but the people are real. Welcome to our second week together and fourth episode. Today, I want to dive more into the student side of student-athlete. I'm joined by a former professor of mine, Mark Brilliant, and yes, he is brilliant. Um, He teaches and researches both history and American studies here at Cal and is one of the most captivating lecturers I've had the honor of learning from. We'll talk about the class that I took with him, his voyage into the world of academia, and why an academic career pays off for him in ways that other careers wouldn't be able to. I hope you guys can hear his passion for what he does because, in my opinion, that's what makes him so good at his job. Anyway, I think hearing about academic career paths is a nice change of pace from a lot of what we're used to hearing about. So let's jump in. I'm with a former professor of mine from this most recent semester, uh, taught one of the most interesting classes I've taken so far at Berkeley. It was about the intersection of Wall Street and Main Street. So uh, today I'm with Professor Mark Brilliant. How are you doing today? Excellent, Jake. Uh, it's my first podcast, so uh, I'm a little apprehensive about what I might say over the course of the next 45 minutes. You know, when I lecture, I have uh, I have notes, and sure. I thought it all through, and uh, podcasts. And, and I'm, used to, I'm, I'm the one that's used to, uh, to asking questions, so can I ask a question first? Yeah, go for it. Why in the world did you pick me? <laughs> um, I'm So you've heard a little bit of these podcasts so far, and it's about people that have found their passions and have acted on it in certain ways and for me I feel like it's tough to be a good teacher instructor researcher if you don't have any sort of passion in that direction like you probably just won't be very good at it um and you gave like I mentioned earlier some of the most interesting lectures I've heard um while being in college so and I want people from as many different backgrounds and and as many different passions as possible and so that's that's why you came to mind um when, when i was picking guests for the show great i appreciate that it's good to know i put a lot of time in those uh, yeah into those lectures and my uh, co-instructor in the class uh he and i professor solomon in the law school as you know have uh it's the second time we taught it and we've really kind of uh thought through ways in which our different intellectual interests and research interests might um, come together um, in a course uh, that blends his background as a corporate lawyer and a corporate law professor and uh, my background as a historian. Yeah, let's talk about that class for a little bit. Um, Just because, you know, I keep saying how it was one of the most interesting classes I've taken. One of the reasons I think that um, is because you and Professor Solomon, so the, the class for those listening... Uh, it was an intersection of Wall Street and Main Street and kind of debunking some of the myths surrounding them being at odds um, with each other all the time. And it was taught by Professor Brilliant, who I have here with me today, and a law professor, Professor Solomon. Um, like Professor Brilliant said, uh, he is more of an academic background where Professor Solomon um, was a corporate lawyer for a little bit. So one of the things that I found so interesting about the class was the different backgrounds that you guys had and how it tended to lend itself to you guys having different views about similar issues. Um, so that's that's one of the things that I really liked about it. But at the same time, I know you've gotten some feedback from students that 
didn't like that aspect and they didn't really know what to think about certain things with you guys having differing opinions. Um, was that when, when you guys were formulating this course, was that something you'd thought about and wanted to include your difference of opinion? Yeah, I, th- I think we thought, um, uh, the pairing of two different disciplinary lenses, two dis- different ways of thinking about a similar topic would be, um, uh, really useful for students, uh, really um, hopefully enlightening uh, to hear something talked about through the lens of a historian, through the lens of someone whose work, his academic work, is in corporate law and finance. Um, and so uh, we both have these kinds of common interests in, in issues of political economy, economic history, um, very light economic history, sure. uh, business history. And uh, I don't know which one of us came up with the topic idea, but you know the the terms Wall Street and Main Street are kind of bandied about um, uh, as metaphors, um, and usually they refer to uh, streets uh, and the people who populate those streets mm-hmm. that run at right angles to one another. And you know you typically hear, uh, well, it's good for Wall Street, it's bad for Main Street, or it's good right. for Main Street and bad for Wall Street. And uh, we wanted to, over the course uh, that really kind of covers about 100 years, or actually late 19th uh, to early 20th century, or from the first Gilded Age to the current Gilded Age, yeah. uh, uh, the, that sort of swath of history and think about change over time um, in that relationship. Does it make sense always to think about it as, uh, as, as, a, as a relationship that uh, posits two streets that run at right, right angles? Um, are there ways in which uh, the streets don't run at right angles, run parallel? Mm-hmm. Um, do they reinforce one another in some kind of way? And so that was uh, the idea. I think you put it well, uh, kind of to debunk the myth or the assumption that they always, they necessarily run at right angles. Right. And um, I think that what we were a little surprised the first pass through is... Uh, is I, I, I've co-taught classes before with someone from uh, different disciplinary backgrounds and uh, and we I think we expected a little bit of well who which one are you supposed to, are we right. supposed to believe sure which one of you has the right answer yeah um, what's going to be on the exam is it his <laughs> way of thinking about it your way of thinking about it um, and that it can be I think for a student um, a bit schizophrenic, right? You like you're just different styles, and in different, in addition to different, you know, different styles of lecturing, in addition to different kind of approaches to the material. I think what we didn't anticipate the first time through, and you took it the the second time, and we'll probably we won't teach it next year, and maybe we'll teach it the year after, or mm-hmm. two years later, depending on our leave schedule, and off to do our own research. Um, what we didn't anticipate the first time through is there were a small number of. Um, of, of student evaluations that um, considered the fact that we um, would sort of interrupt each other with questions um, and oftentimes uh, disagree with one another in, in, with those questions, either implicitly or explicitly, um, as uh, something that made them uncomfortable. I think uh, some of the comments were along the lines of, if you don't agree with one another, um, why are you teaching together? <laughs> Which, of course, was the whole point of our sort of thinking about right. that it would be useful for students to have these different viewpoints. And other students had things like, well, when, uh, you know, it was very unprofessional uh, to disagree with one another. It made me feel uncomfortable. And so I don't 
know if you remember, but one of the things that we did at the beginning of your version of the course yeah. was to put, you know, to put our arms around each other, to be in a class on the first day of class and say, we're friendly with one another. <laughs> we go all grab beers together. Our families hang out every once in a while together. Um, but that doesn't mean that we agree with each other uh, on, you know, as a matter of ideology, as a matter of how we think about the past and the present. Um, and so that was, and, and, and so that was our way of saying, and if that's going to make you feel uncomfortable, if you don't want to be in a class where you're not only going to get these divergent viewpoints, but you might find some disagreement there. And if that, if you're one of those people that think that's, you know, if you disagree, why would you teach together? Then this isn't the class for you to take. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, I didn't see anyone get up and walk yeah. out, but uh, you know, so for, and, and I don't, I haven't gotten to see the, the evaluations around this time if anyone had those same qualms, but uh um, that was definitely something that we picked up on the first time, and we're shocked by. It. I mean, we just we knew that the you know, the different approaches might disorient some students right. and feel a bit schizophrenic, but we didn't think that the idea that you would have two people who approach the material sort of in different, you know, have different have, would disagree about the substance of of certain matters would be something that would uh, that would make students feel, as one of them said, uncomfortable. <laughs> right. And, well, for me, it was refreshing because I think it's way more. I mean, oftentimes in Berkeley, like, it's no secret that, that Berkeley is very strongly leaned toward the liberal side of the spectrum. And I think we almost get this, like, uh, I don't know, skewed view of what people's general opinions are on stuff because everyone here is of such a similar opinion. And I thought it was more representative of, of what, um, you know talking to people from around the world or around the country would be like. Um, and for that reason, I found it refreshing. And, and another part of it that I found refreshing was even though like you've done so much research um, surrounding, let's say housing in California and, and people having the ability to access housing. And we talked a lot about prop 13, even though you've done so much research about it, you're, you're still like, well, if there was something on the ballot that would repeal that is, I don't know if I'd vote for that. Because that, like, it'd be really tough for you to keep your home based on taxes alone. So, like, I, that I also found refreshing. Is like, even though I I have certain views on stuff and uh, feel a certain way about it, even if if there was a a measure on the ballot that went along with those views and it didn't necessarily support me, like, I don't know <laughs> if I'd support that. Which I I just thought. For, for those reasons, difference of opinion and also ability to sway your opinion on certain issues depending on its impact on yourself. Um, that was something I just found refreshing. I appreciate that. I, you know, I, I really try to approach um, the dissemination of knowledge, which is what we do when we profess as professors, I guess, um, uh, in a way that tries to bring out, um, you know, if knowledge had a color, I think it would be gray and right. I, I think trying to capture um the shades of gray the ambiguity the contradictions both in the material we're presenting but also the ways in which um 
what we might think about as scholars might run up against our own personal predilections uh-huh. um, and pocketbook, uh, and to use your case, right, of, of the Prop 13. I think, I think the line I used around that was, well, you're going to hear me lecture today about why Prop 13 is problematic in all sorts of ways, but if you listen carefully on the day that I get my property tax bill, you might hear me breathe a sigh of relief that isn't pegged to the current market rate, and I'd be paying double or more right. than my current house. Right. So, um, and that would have some big bearing, uh, big implications for what you know, me and my family were were able to do. So I think um, uh, it's it's really incumbent um, upon me. This is my approach. I, the last thing I want to do is um, is use the classroom as a space to to bludgeon my students with uh, my personal politics. And uh, sometimes uh, uh, I, I think uh, the best question I can get at the end is like sort of I don't know where you stand on on, on issues. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I don't have a stance on issues. It's because I feel like my uh, my role, my approach to my role as a professor is to um, is to stake out a stand to the extent that I have one. Um, that's wherever you are. I'm going to just stand uh, opposed, mm. and and through that opposition, through that kind of questioning back and forth, uh, I think there's there's good grist for dialogue, for exchange, and for really understanding. And I think you know, first thing you'll learn in law school, from what I understand, I didn't go to law school, is that. Uh, you really need to inhabit um, the arguments of the other side, um, not only to understand them on their own terms, but to better understand um, and grapple with, um, you know, where you think you stand on something. Um, and so, um, I really, you know, that, that that's my approach to it. Now, having a, a class with somebody who who's who's coming at the material in a different way and who will catch me when I'm sort of articulating assumptions that I maybe I don't recognize and question me on them, whether it's about tax policy or regulatory policy, um, uh, you know, general view of the corporation, corporate personhood, the kind of topics that we hit sure. upon in the class. Um, that's really useful for me because, you know, as much as I can articulate to you, this is how I think about myself. It's not necessarily getting up there and staking out a... Uh, you know, an ideological position and trying to impose it upon my students, God yeah. forbid. Um, uh, I think that having someone there to keep me honest and to check me and to raise those questions is is, is really helpful for me um, uh, as, as I think about the material and grapple with how I think about it. So I'm glad you picked up on those yeah. things because yeah, that was, mean, like that's said, a real core sort of premise there. And it's really, I think, important. How, and if we cannot on campus have dialogue with one another, there's no hope for dialogue in the world beyond campus, right? right? And this is the space that to do it. And our job is to make sure as faculty that we, you know, that we um, cultivate that dialogue as, as, as best we can. And so we try to model that um, amongst ourselves. And I think when you have two people who are, who sense are coming at it sort of differently, but can be friendly. And, and like, I think that's, hopefully that's the best way of modeling. That's the best way to model so that you can yeah. go and have conversations with people on hot button issue topics that you don't necessarily agree about um, in a way that's respectful, that at the end of the day, you, you know, maybe persuade them a little bit or they persuade you a little bit, or you just, uh, you know, agree to respectfully disagree. Um, I think that's, you know, one of the most important, you know, this is the time and the place and the space and we can't do it here. Um, it gives me great pause for what, you know, the prospect of being able to do it in the world beyond here, where of course it's not such, not, not so great, but that's, yeah. um, you know, those are, our, you know, like the big picture goals that we would have. Yeah. And know. that's when I boil it down, like those are the main things why I like the court so much is 
being able to be receptive to another viewpoint that you not necessarily that you don't necessarily agree with and having the ability to change your viewpoint and that's where just in my personal life like when you have people who are at odds on opinion the lack of ability to change the way that they think of it is like the biggest hindrance to progress um so i'm glad we got to touch on the class um but i want to talk more about you personally and um your journey to to end up where you are today uh, and get to a point where you're teaching a multidisciplinary class at UC Berkeley. So um, I think it's a good good place to start would be... It's we, like living the dream for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose short of being, a, you know, Bruce Springsteen or, a, <laughs> you know, a shortstop for the New York Yankees, uh, not, none of which were ever in the realm of possibility, <laughs> um, uh, this was... Uh, about as lucky as I could possibly be to, yeah, to, so, to uh, teach students like you at an institution like this. It allows me to teach classes on topics I want, to do research on sure. subjects I'm interested in. I mean, um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's a real privileged position that I occupy. And, uh, and I think sometimes my enthusiasm for the position, at least when I lecture, I mean, comes across. So, yeah. Well, um, I want to start because um, you and I and Professor Solomon met up a little bit after the class had ended. Uh, and uh, just to talk about the class and also talk about um, some stuff related to being a student athlete here at Cal. And in this conversation, I found out, which I did not know during our semester of, of uh, that class together, that you yourself had been a student athlete in college. Um, so why don't you talk about the experience of being a student athlete um, and management of what it was like to manage being a student athlete when you were in college and, uh, with school. Okay. So uh, I was a very different kind of student athlete than a football player at a Power sure. 5 conference. <laughs> I was a swimmer in the Ivy League. Um, not The time commitment was probably equally enormous, but I don't think the amount of attention um, and, and, and pressure, there was certainly no scholarship attached to um, uh, you know, being a you know, Ivy Leagues don't offer uh, scholarships, right. but that was the culmination of um, of of a sport that I had done uh, competitively since and year round since I was maybe starting six or seven years old. I mean, it was it was uh, it was you know there was school and there was swimming at a certain point. I did other sports, but maybe by the time I was 10, there was, there was, there was nothing else left. And so by the time I was in you know, middle school practices, if you know the swimmers around here, um, practices for the year-round swimmers. I mean, this is not summer league stuff. This yeah. was you know, the equivalent oh. of AAU basketball. It right. used to be AAU for swimming, but I think it's a different organization. But it's, you know, it's mornings, it's afternoons. I mean, we were routinely going. You know, by the time I was in middle school, high school, practices were... 5 a.m. in the morning, um, and then they would have another practice in the afternoon. Maybe we would get one Wednesday off, tended to practice on Saturday, Sunday was off. So, I, you know, we're talking about eight or nine practices a week. So it was something I did very seriously. Um, it was something that I got to uh, some junior national level ranking, but I never, you know, my goal was just to qualify for the Olympic trials. I never quite reached that. Um, 
Uh, and it was something that shaped, it was so formative in my life. It was something that really shaped. Um, I had to be, as you know, when you're trying to balance a heavy load outside of school, you're, um, it really forces you to, if you care about school, like I cared about school, to really, you know, to be productive, to use your time yeah. um, well. Um, and it gave me that focus uh, in the limited amount of time. Uh, it allowed me um, to eat a lot <laughs> in a way that I probably can't do anymore since I don't swim. Uh, and uh, it gave me, you know, my friends. It certainly helped me uh, get into college. I think it was tough for me in college because kind of plateaued and school was really demanding. Um, but uh, it was something that shaped every aspect of my life. And I can still smell the chlorine, you know, all these decades later. Um, and I'm still really grateful that uh, my alarm clock doesn't go off at 437 as it <laughs> used to in high school. So I could get up and get out to practice. And uh, um, so, uh, so, yeah, it was, it was super formative. Um, and while my own children don't swim, I don't want to take them to practice that early in the morning. I'm not sure that... Uh, Swimming's the most fun. Um, uh, they do certainly are all. Uh, I have an 11 year old son, uh, almost 11, and an eight year old daughter. And uh, um, my son has been deep into baseball for years and increasingly deep into tennis. And it's great because I love to play tennis, I love to watch baseball. My daughter is doing gymnastics here at Cal, at one of the Cal programs, and is picking up tennis, which I'm very happy about, because when we go to the Cal gymnastics practices, at least the club uh, gymnastics practices, uh, it's like the walking wounded in there with these like 12 <laughs> and 13-year-old girls, and I look at them like, really, they got wristbands, their knees, yeah. and so, um, and uh, the nice thing about tennis uh, is that it's a sport you can grow old with, and I think uh, it's good to have things that you uh, physically can grow old with. Um, and I tell my son about baseball. Maybe it'll end in high school. Maybe if you're really, really lucky and good, you'll play in college. But uh, um, you know, at a certain point, you're going to have a hard time getting 18 of your friends together to play pickup baseball. Whereas, sure. you know, you pick up tennis. It's something you'll be able to play the rest of your life. And so I, you know, the the relationship between, and, and I think that it serves them well in school and that relationship between you know being physically fit and mentally uh, agile um, uh, to me those things and I still try to stay fit um, I'll never be as fit as I was as a swimmer but I won't swim again either <laughs> so I picked up other sports after college in fact I was I, I remember thinking after I was finally done I was so happy to be done with it no more staring at a black line at the bottom of the pool going 8,000 yards one practice 8,000 yards another practice and um and thinking to myself, you know, if I were on a boat at this point, this was right after college, and I was yeah. so done with it, and the boat capsized, and I had a choice between swimming the shore or drowning, <laughs> I think I would have chosen drowning at that point. So, um, so yeah, I haven't done much of it, but I picked up other things. I started running, then my knees gave out, but I'm really deep into tennis yeah. these days uh, as, as, as my extracurricular sport. And so, um, so, yeah, it's a super formative part of my life. Yeah, that's one of the reasons, like, you asked me if I could be a professional in any sport, I would, like, probably pick golf. Like, a really good professional <laughs> in any sport. Like, you play till you're however old, you're going to nice country clubs, like, you're not really worried about too many injuries, like... Beaten up. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it seems like a good life to be a professional golfer to me, but... Yeah, that's... Uh, um, you can play until you're... You can be competitive well into your 40s, oh, right? Yeah. What what other sport can you do that? Yeah. But um so what 
did you think when you were in college, what did you think you were going to do professionally? I didn't necessarily go to college with that. I think students these days have far more pressure on them. Sure. The nature of the economy is such that, um, and all the stories about, you know, where are you going to get a job? I think I didn't go to school with that in mind. Right. Um, just going to college was like the ticket, much less going to an Ivy League college was the ticket. I just, I didn't, I didn't have those worries that I think you all have in a way. Um, so I was allowed, it was, and I was just happy to be in school. I was happy to be in a place where, um, where I could just follow my curiosity, um, and take, you know, and, and I took a whole wide range of classes that I was just curious about and I didn't have to worry about would this serve What were me? some of those subject areas? Uh, I mean, I was taking classes in philosophy, <laughs> in classics, I took some light engineering and math, I really struggled on those classes, I, I still remember the day that the math class, and maybe I didn't took this in high school, I can't remember, I think it was in college, but there was some, I think it was Taylor's polynomial or something, maybe that's just basic calculus, but I, like, I sort of got off the train at that point. Um, and then I gravitated towards, I, I ended up majoring in political science, but history was, you know, became an interest. Um, public policy. So the, I think when I was there, I didn't, so I don't go in thinking about that, but when I was as, as an undergraduate, um, uh, in, this was in the, uh, the late 1980s, I became interested and involved in a school reform project, K through 12 school reform project that was attached to um, the Department of Education at Brown, where I was an undergraduate. And there was a professor there who was a, written a really popular book um, where he was trying to outline a different approach to uh, teaching um, and learning in uh, K through 12 schools than the one that he saw and the research saw as kind of the more common way that things were done, especially in big public schools. And uh, I was drawn to that. Um, um, and I began working there. Um, and I think through that, my interests sort of started of moving in the direction of education. And so at a certain point, maybe my senior year, as I was working there, I stayed for an extra year to work, but sometime around there, I thought to myself, um, I looked at myself in the mirror one morning, I said, here you are um, working uh, at a school reform project, um, dealt with a lot of urban school issues. Um, uh, and so in a sense, you're kind of this aspiring school reformer who's never taught a day in the, <laughs> of your life in the yeah. schools. That you're, and I just couldn't take myself seriously. I said, so either you need to go and and do that kind of work and get a kind of on the ground, uh, you know, in the trenches feel for, you know, what the issues are in those places that you're studying from and thinking about from this sort of ivory tower um, um, or you need to just do something else. And so I'd contemplated a little bit of law school, um, but this one felt to me like, no, I needed to do that. And so um, it hit me on a way to visit a friend of mine in New York City over Thanksgiving after I just graduated. I was staying around to, to work at, at the, it was called the Coalition of Essential Schools, Essential Schools, uh, run by Ted Sizer. And I was visiting, uh, on my way to visit a friend of mine around Thanksgiving in New York is when this thought hit me and, and I stuck around and I went to the New York City Board of Education 
um, and I filled out a, uh, a, a license to become a, a new teacher. Around that same time, that same year, a new organization was emerging called Teach for America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, <coughs> I thought, well, um, I'm going to apply for that as well. And uh, if I don't get into Teach for America or they don't place me in New York, in, in New York City because that's where I wanted to go, that's where I was born, that's where my parents, my father was from, my mother and my father, that's where I would be. So I definitely wanted to go to New York City. Um, this would have been in 1990 or so. Uh, and uh, I got into Teach for America. They agreed to place me uh, in New York City. And uh, I met uh, part of the attraction Teach for America then. It was, it was just simply that I would meet a cohort of recent college graduates who were going sure. to a big public institute, big, big city, big school system. And I ended up living with a couple of them. Um, and going through that kind of, um, you know, it was sort of a domestic Peace Corps kind of experience yeah. for us. Uh, um, and really, you know, if, if, you know, this was probably even more formative uh, in my life than all the years I'd spent, uh, you know, trying to balance uh, competitive swimming in school. I mean, this really, and it's, so it's at that point in, in, in the, so I stayed for four years at a large public high school uh, in Brooklyn, New York, which eventually closed its doors because it was it had become too dysfunctional. Um, uh, it was uh, I, I met some great students, some great teachers, but um, you know I was a soundbite in the drama of their daily lives. I was you know like for a lot of the students, um, and so I got a sense of what you know the sort of that on the ground sense of what it was you know what were the issues facing schools like that and yeah. students that went, that went to those schools and. Uh, and it was in that process where I thought, okay, well, you know, I want to now that I've spent four or five years doing this, and I've been out of school at that uh, that long, um, uh, being a teacher I knew wasn't a long term thing. A, K, a high school teacher, certainly right. not in the New York City Board of uh, Board of Education. Um, uh, in part because I don't think I was good enough. In part, it's really challenging. Uh, in part because you know, then as now, there's this sort of stigma attached to, oh, you just a teacher which like I couldn't I hated that but I couldn't yeah. sort of get my my parents were like well we left New York City and now you're going back to New York City you know <laughs> you went to you know we went to City College you're going to my mom went to Boston University my dad went to City College uh, you're going to it's sort of but that aside the thing I think I really uh, was craving was um I loved the history that I was teaching. I loved learning about it. I loved teaching about it. And I just wanted the opportunity to, um, to delve deeper into that history. And the only sort of option where you could have this balance between um, that kind of deep reading, and I didn't know then, but I ended up discovering that I liked writing about it as well, mm-hmm. and, and then teaching is as a professor. It's, and, and so graduate school emerged at that point. Um, I would study some version of the, I started out doing the history of education. I ended up within a school of education. I ended up transferring and getting a, a PhD in, in history. So it was a long process, um, yeah. but I didn't feel the pressure at first. And, and I think that's, um, uh, and I just think that allowed me to explore my curiosity. And I think more than anything, you know, that's ideally what your undergraduate education and a liberal arts institution should be. It's about, you know, keeping that and exploring that 
curiosity and those passions, you know, yeah. to, like, what are those? Um, and if you can find a way to, like, I've been, you know, fortunate enough and privileged enough to be able to make your passion, your career, you know, you're living the dream. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. Um, I, I want to echo some of that too, because I feel like I've gotten to take, I mean, I came in here not knowing what I wanted to major in. Um, and it took me three years to figure it out. Um, and in that time I was taking so many diverse classes and I got to, like, I got to take a class, like the class that I took with you, which, I mean, if I came in here and knew what I wanted to do, probably wouldn't have ended up, ended up taking it. I didn't need it for a breath requirement. Like I, I didn't need it for, for any particular reason. It was just like an interesting thing, an interesting aside that I was afforded the opportunity to take. So, so I did, and I ended up, like I saying, like I said, really enjoying it. One of my favorite classes I've taken here was an art history class. I haven't done anything with art history since that was my very first semester. I haven't done anything with it since then, but the, the way of looking at art differently and looking at uh, the history of it, like it was a new way of thinking that I hadn't got to experience. So if anyone is listening and not in college yet or in college and afforded some room in your schedule, I'd recommend trying to take as many diverse classes as possible because I, I, I think it's, you know, you learn more. And my, I think one of the coolest things is you see how all these cross disciplinary things connect to each other. That's yeah. Well, I yeah. think that one of the things that really jumped out for me, the same thing in college was, um, uh, you know, the subjects as a high school student existed in these separate spheres and I didn't know how to connect them and they certainly weren't necessarily being connected to me by my teachers, but there was a way in which, you know, take, you started to take classes and you just started to discover that there were connections between subjects and connections with your interests. And I think that, uh, and it just became, it just added to the sort of, uh, um, to the to what for me was really it was almost like exhilaration. You yeah, know? I still remember. I mean, I just I loved actually read. I mean, maybe that's why I'm here at self selective <laughs> But you know, I was really excited when I go get the syllabi and look at the books and uh, yeah, you know, and going in and reading them and having conversations and sections. I mean, it was. Uh, I think I sensed that it was, you know, it was you know it was a precious four years that would be gone soon enough didn't realize at the beginning that I would end up having a career that allowed me to do that. Sure. But I think that, um, you know, I sit on the, the Academic Senate's uh, Admissions and Enrollment uh, Committee, and so one of the things we're involved in is overseeing setting you know, uh, admissions policy, overseeing the implementation of that policy. And, um, and so we look at, you know, we look at kind of sample applications each year, and the things that I wish those applications really sort of... Uh, weeded out and, 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 and identified is, you know, and it's hard, you know, this, you get all of these numbers and grades, and, but like the things that get at student, I, mean, I think the things you need the, the most to, to thrive in a place like this and what we should be selecting for more than anything, um, you know, over and above, obviously you have to have tenacity, but it's curiosity and creativity mm. um, because those things, you know, cut across the disciplines and those are the things that will just make you enjoy your time here they will serve you well beyond here um and the more you just let yourself follow your curiosities i think the and and not be worried about where they might you know how they might line up for this or that career um 
the better off you'll be and the more you'll be able to get out of your four years here and uh, the better off it'll set you up for what it is you discover you want to do right at some point right down the line whether it's after your four years or four years after that i mean there's just uh, I get a lot of students, uh, there were some in the class you took, there are uh, students who come back as, you know, they're retired. Um, there's a whole network of, of retirees on this campus who go around and audit classes. Yeah. Um, some of them, some of the, are actually back as students, but most of them are just here as auditors. And I've had a lot of them over the years in my classes. And, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, you know. I just want to come back and, you know, immerse myself Learn, in the world yeah. of ideas. I yeah. used to, I used to kind of like, you know, hide history books under my desk, you know, <laughs> at work and I would read a page or two. So when the boss wasn't looking and now I just get to come back and, and sit in and, and learn and not worry about taking tests or writing papers, but just to sit in and listen, read yeah. the books, learn. And, uh, um, you know, and it's certainly, you know, for me as a professor, it's the curious students to get me through. It's the ones like you, I look out and are nodding along and are following. Um, there are plenty of others. It looks like I'm torturing. <laughs> I try not to look at them because it makes me feel really bad. But, uh, um, and uh, the ones coming to my office, not to talk about, well, why did I get a B plus instead of an A minus? Oh my gosh, really? Versus the ones who like, you know, I was, and I had a great group of them this semester in that class. There's like two or three, like almost after every class would come back here and all we wanted, all they wanted to do was talk about whatever that, particular right. lecture was or some newspaper article that they read that was connected up or a podcast or um so and that's just you know that's that, that just it's the best part of the job so. yeah yeah um and while you're talking about that it just made me think also my final paper for um the class i had with you <clears throat> the idea i got for it was actually from another class i was like hey this is is from a city planning class and i was like this relates to the intersection of Wall Street, Main Street, like, this is a perfect thing to talk about for this. So it's like, just goes to show kind of how taking classes across disciplines can help you within other disciplines. Yeah, and, and I really encourage students to uh, to write a thesis, even if they're in a discipline. History requires a thesis. American Studies, those are my two uh, departments, require senior theses, but... Um, but others, you know, like if you've if you've done this right, you know, you set yourself up for writing a senior thesis. Once you think about, as you've described, the way in which what you learned over here and over here and over here sort of can inform, you know, this sort of capstone sort of opportunity to just, all right, I'm going to tackle a project now, yeah. get an honors uh, thesis and leave here uh, having really sort of uh, pushed myself to the academic limit, limits and, and, and milk this place for all it's worth. And you know, thesis, like, oftentimes we'll encourage students to think about the, you know, the smaller papers they're writing in an upper div class, like the one you took with me, as yeah. an opportunity to pull together some ideas that they maybe have been toying around with other classes, maybe to set up um, uh, a senior thesis. Certainly the students who are going to have to write those right. are history majors, American studies majors, but uh, but others, you know, it's, 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 it's a real test. Uh, uh, to, to have uh, to, to go through that, uh, to write a thesis, and to have that as a capstone experience, but it's 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 something that you know, no one can take away from you. And it's sure. to kind of like wrap this place, you know, put it in a nice, you know, tie tie it all up in a nice package, yeah. and, uh, and say there it is, I did that. Well, so I know the yeah. students who I've worked with over the years always feel you know, super proud and rightfully so about the you know, the work that goes into. Um, into, into something like that. And those are really challenging because so much of what we do as students here is, 
and is, is, is sort of, you know, your professors give over information in their lectures and the books they assign and, you know, you're just, students are oftentimes expected to just sort of give that information back in some kind of way, whereas the thesis or paper in a class is a kind of mini thesis, right? No, no, no. You, you have to come up with the question. Yeah. You have to go out and do the research. You have to pull together the information. You have to figure out how to package it in a way that advances an argument that's supported by evidence. And um, that exercise, whether, you know, which is sort of the, the common denominator, I think, through all the, the subject areas here, is that whether you're in art history, history, sociology, whatever, is we all, as professors, are in the business of making arguments using evidence. We make different kinds of arguments, we use different kinds of methodologies that give us different kinds of evidence, but that to me is the common denominator and it's the skill set that matters most for undergraduates to leave here with confidence in. that I can do research, I know what it means to come up with a question, to do the research to answer that question, to answer that question in the form of some kind of essay, to advance an argument based on that evidence. And you might not ever do that in a way that is about art history or history, sociology, whatever. Yeah. But it's hard for me to imagine domains of life that don't involve the ability to be persuasive as a prerequisite sure. to being successful. Sure. And that's what making an argument using evidence is. It's about being persuasive. If there's not good enough evidence, no one's going to be persuaded, you know? And yeah. so whether you're a product manager, an attorney, you're, you're developing a co business concept, you're launching a, a podcast that you want people to listen to. I mean, it's, you know, so much of the, you know, and to me, that's the most important thing you come away with. You're going to forget the, the content of your classes, except for, you know, they'll be random. I still have these random factoids that stick, stick in my brain from all those years ago when I was an undergraduate. But it's that skill set of uh, how to make arguments using evidence, how to research, how to write, um, that I think is portable well beyond here and serves you um, really well, as long as you still have that and have cultivated that sense of curiosity um, and keep that flame burning throughout the rest of your life. I mean. Yeah, real uh, quick, I wanna go back to when you were teaching high school. Sure. And you mentioned you were living with a lot of other uh, people working for Teach for America. Yeah. Um, how many of those people are still involved in academic and academics and teaching? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the, the, the big challenges about Teach for, at the K through 12 level. Um, I don't know, Teach for America probably has the data. I certainly, I mean, I'm not, as a K through 12 teacher, I'm not. Um, as somebody who writes about K through 12 issues and who has that experience to inform my thinking, then I'm connected. And so, depends, do you wanna kind of think of, the, so if we're talking about, yeah, I'm, to what I'm extent- I'm just talking about academic sphere, like still, still teaching or writing academically in some capacity. Yeah, I don't know the data. My sense, of the ones that I know, a lot went on to get public policy degrees, mm. law degrees, PhDs. Uh, they left the class, the K through 12 class. Right. And that's one of the, the, the big, to me, problems. I don't know how it, how it works. It was certainly a problem then is that um, the sort of turnover of K through 12 teachers, especially in the schools with key uh, uh, Teach for America place only sort of to me exacerbated the problem. It's part of why I stayed four years rather than two years. At least I felt like you know, I was 
one not, full not cycle. churning. You know, like there's so in my students, there was so much flux in their lives, and I just didn't want to be in other sort of contributing sure. flux. And uh, you know, two years, you're barely on your feet pedagogically. Your first year, you do a lot more learning than you do teaching. Your second year, and this is at the high school level. I imagine it's even more difficult to actually learn how to be a decent teacher at the K through six level, middle school level. Um, and so I just felt like after two years, I was barely up on my feet. I was finally at the point where I felt like I could maybe teach a little bit more than I was actually learning how to teach. Yeah. And I felt like, well, um, I would spend the next two years uh, where I was teaching more than I was learning and maybe I would leave with a net gain of zero. <laughs> but the sense of, well, it's four years. I started with there were certain students I knew as freshmen. I graduated a sense, in a sense with them after four years. Yeah. So. Um, I stayed longer, but I didn't stay in. And I think uh, it's, 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 it's a real problem. I don't know if the programs fix that. It's, it's not good for, I mean, those schools need teachers who are like some of my public high school teachers in, you know, suburban Colorado where I grew up from the age of 10 on. You know, they were lifers and they were great teachers. Sure. Um, and um, uh, so the people were connected who, through the Teach for America program, I know, but they went on to other things and sort of were sort of, thinking about the K through 12 issues, but from outside of a K through 12 setting was whether it's, you know, in the sort of the realm of policy or the realm of some kind of academic you know, PhD where you're writing about educational issues. But, uh, um, so, uh, so it's probably a lot more of that than people who stayed and are still, you know, doing their, their, their part to, uh, you know, improve K through 12 education. Yeah. Um, after your, PhD, which you did after those four years uh, teaching high school, what's what path led you to becoming a professor here? Um, and then also, I know your PhD is in history. How did you get into American studies as well? Because I know it, it's a discipline that we have here at Berkeley, but it's it's not as prevalent among universities and colleges as, as something traditional like history is. Yeah. So the. The academic job market for people with humanities degrees is tough. Um, it was tough when I graduated back in 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. Um, and so I applied to every position that, uh, that I thought I fit and some that I didn't think I fit. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, for multiple years, and I applied as a graduate student, I applied as I was graduating, I was lucky enough to get a postdoc um, at Yale, they kept me on for another year as on a one-year teaching appointment, and during that year, um, you know, I applied for another couple dozen or more, few dozen uh, academic history positions. Uh, one of them I almost didn't apply to, is this the position I occupy right now, <laughs> because uh, my degree was in history, and this was clearly this hybrid kind of position. Right. Um, and I remember in the job advertisement, they were looking for people who do. And American studies is very interdisciplinary. Um, history has become more interdisciplinary, and the lines between history and American studies and English and American studies are very blurry. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I remember they're asking for people with preference who focus on non-textual sources. Uh, so things like paintings, film, and that just wasn't what I did. And I said, I just don't think there's going to be a chance. <laughs> so, but what the heck, I'll apply anyway. And uh, lo and behold, uh, uh, you know, lightning struck. And uh, 
and I got the position. And I think to Berkeley's program in American Studies, to its credit, they had a number of students whose in interdisciplinary interests were part historical, but also they were in the realm of kind of law, public policy, educational policy. And so that constellation of interdisciplinary interests yeah. overlapped with some of my own. Um, I was doing a lot of legal history. Um, and as well as educational policy and edu so that ended up uh, redounding to uh, to my favor in a way maybe that the job advertisement didn't uh, signal and uh, um, goes to show you that you should apply far and wide and oftentimes when you're not sure you should apply go ahead and apply anyway because yeah. you never know and you know I hit the jackpot I mean right. I, I absolutely hit the jackpot I would have never I mean I applied to places I'd never heard of and I would have been happy at. I just wanted to get a job as a professor of history somewhere, as a professor somewhere. I spent all these years getting a PhD. I wanted to be able to continue to do that. Never in my wildest dreams did I think that I would end up at a place like UC Berkeley that has students <laughs> like you and like, you know, like just this incredible and colleagues. I mean, it just so uh, it was a real lesson in, you know, the, the sort of uh, the nature of, uh, you know, uh, the job market uh, and the academic job market in particular. But uh, I think. Uh, yeah. apply far and wide and uh, the ones that you're not sure about what the heck you know what the heck yeah so yeah uh, so I've been really lucky and and being in American studies has really helped me you know a lot of the stuff I do with music you know I begin every lecture right there's always some kind of song, song yeah, right that comes out of uh, yeah. video clips and trying to bring in film and art I would have never done that but for the exposure to my colleagues who are affiliated with the program in American studies here who do things with non-textual sources and, and sources I don't necessarily look at that, yeah. um, that are just a different lens to think about topics I'm interested in. So, and certainly, you know, that's, uh, so I've, it's, 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 I've grown tremendously intellectually, uh, because of that, the hybrid nature of my position that, um, that I almost didn't apply for. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I think, <clears throat> like we were talking like you were saying the worst thing that comes of it is you just whittled out something like if you didn't didn't end up liking it you found out something that you don't want to do exactly and, and that just helps you narrow your focus even more yeah um i want to ask one more question before i get into the final three which are the final three questions i ask everybody on this show and it's kind of a tough one um because as part of the differences between you and Professor Solomon in the class, there's the difference in salary he gets for being a law professor versus being a humanities professor. Like, there's just more money in law. Um, and you're someone who's, you know, intellectually capable to have done a, a whole lot of different things other than continue to be within the academic sphere and, and teach. Um, and you make a good, you do make a good living, but like I'm saying, you probably could have made uh, more money doing something else. Does that pay off for you? The the giving back to the academic community um, and being able to teach students, and like you're saying, you you do it for when the students come in after class. You get to have these conversations, and they'll give you more sources or things to look at. Does that pay off for you in a way that more um, financial compensation you don't think would have? Yeah, that's that's the priceless part, and you can't put a price tag on that. Um, being able to work with undergraduates who are interested in history or American studies um, who are not you know, in a program where they're paying 
you know, law school tuition or they need to, they're going to have a huge debt and they're really in a kind of pre-professional space. So um, I think uh, that, you know, there are benefits that, that you can't put a, you know, price tag on that come yeah. along with, you know, these are, uh, you know, this is where my intellectual curiosity resides. I mean, I get a very <laughs> nice salary. I am right. You know, right. And, I'm not. I'm and, not implying. You know, like I have right. never suggested otherwise. Yes, I mean there are market forces that you know that uh, a corporate law professor right. um, can say to a, an institution that well, and and they know that that you know, and, and you'll see this in econ too. There there are other opportunities outside the university sure. that those people can go to, and that that's part of what drives up those salaries. There's not a lot of you know, history PhDs, you know, I can go and maybe teach at the K through 12 level, or maybe there's some think tank work, but there's not the same kind of market forces yeah. that someone like Professor Solomon is able to leverage. Um, the institution has to sort of compete with. And so, uh, um, and uh, so, uh, yeah. Had I, I could have done a joint, maybe in retrospect, because my intellectual interests are in legal history, um, some of them. A joint JD PhD where I had a kind of a law school appointment, a history appointment, right. and been able to sort of, but I didn't. And you know, sometimes I think, oh, maybe I should have done that. But then Professor Solomon reminds me that, uh, you know, the one thing that the law professors all do is they grade all of those blue book exams <laughs> every year. So <laughs> I'm certainly glad I don't have to do that in my big lecture classes. So. All right, so let's move on to the final three. It's the okay. last three questions I ask everybody on here. So. First one, what's one thing you've read, watched, or listened to lately that you were inspired by and you think the people listening should check out? So there are a couple podcasts, one by Malcolm Gladwell called Revisionist History. Um, another one, I think it's called Against the Rules by Michael Lewis. I, you know, I, I've, I've really been into those. And I'm reading a tremendous book uh, now called The Code. It's about the history of Silicon Valley. Um, and Which is something you're researching right now, right? Yeah. It's by Margaret O'Mara. She's a professor at the University of Washington. And I'm just um, going to insert real quick before you keep going. We had a lecture about the history of Silicon Valley um, in the class. And that was maybe the, my favorite lecture I've had at Cal. So, well, thanks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, th that's the book to read, though. I mean, my lecture will really draw on her work and, you know, hopefully I'll have something to add at a certain point when I finish my book project. But her book is The Code. It's just come out. Simon & Schuster published it. It's a big book. But if you want to know about the history of Silicon Valley, one that sort of uh, is appropriately attentive to its roots in kind of um, defense contracting, yep. but it's also attentive to the kind of entrepreneurial sort of ideas and you know, genius that sort of takes those two things and puts them together in the way we try to put Wall Street and Main Street together. It says it's not either or, it's this combination. Um, it's a really riveting read. Um, as a historian, she writes really well. So, um, so I'm reading that now. I'm almost done with it. It's great. So, Okay. Number two, um, who or what was your biggest inspiration to figuring out your passions and acting on them? Hmm. Uh, I, I think my interest in history was first piqued by my high school uh, AP U.S. history teacher, um, Jack Benson, mm -hmm. uh, who I've kept in touch with more off than on over the years. Uh, that's probably, and then, um, 
it has been you know since I've arrived it was the students at Lafayette High School um, who really sort of inspired me to, to be the best teacher I could be yeah um, and it's the students here um, who are my first sort of you know I it's 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 students you know like you who I'm first testing out ideas that I'm working on but I haven't yet published right and you know you're my sounding board if you know what I'm saying about history of Silicon Valley that some snapshot of it that I'm working on um, and that's one of the great things about being at a university for or it could be a bad thing but <laughs> uh, but as an undergraduate a place like UC Berkeley is you know your your professors are you know sort of so many of them are on the cutting edge of their you know their scholarly enterprise and uh, many of them are bringing that into their teaching. And I can tell you that, you know, in my own case, not that I'm necessarily one of those, you know, there's lots of really great people at this campus. And, uh, but, you know, the opportunity to, uh, to test out and see how it flies, ideas that I'm working out and yet I haven't published about. Um, so students have been super inspiring. Um, and my colleagues, too. So uh, it's not, I know that's not one person in particular but it's 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 kind of collectives um that are you know key as well as an individual high school teacher that i remember really well yeah so the last question what right now is your current goal well other than you know to be a good father to be a good (laughs) husband to be a good citizen of the world uh you know i professional goals uh you know I, i think the one that's most pressing is i'd really um you know, try to find the time to really write up a lot of the research I've done over the last few years on a book project that's called tentatively uh, right now, but it's called From School Bus to Google Bus. And uh, to, to get that um, written up in the next few years and published uh, is, is really my main professional goal right now. It's a book project that looks at... Um, you know, if you think about California today, one of the curiosities, one of the ostensible paradoxes is, is, is um, one of the most democratic, one of the most blue states in the country. It's also one of the most unequal states in terms of sure. income inequality. And so the book project is trying to think about you know, how and why does the rise of income polarization in California happen more or less in conjunction with the rise of democratization with the capital D. You know, California becomes increasingly democratic at the same time it's becoming increasingly unequal. Um, and uh, the book project is really trying to think through um, that question. And uh, I've got a lot of research. You're s- swimming in a whole bunch <laughs> of it right here, the, some of the sources that I'm working on. And uh, um, I need to get some time away from teaching as much as I love teaching. Um, I use teaching to help sort of spur some of the writing, but I need to get some time away to to get that book uh, uh, written and published. Um, I'm very excited about it. I just need the time. So that yeah. would be my main uh, professional goal. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. My pleasure. I'm so glad you're doing this, Jake. It's really cool. A big thank you to Professor Brilliant for sitting down and talking with me about his career and his passions, and an extra big thank you for his willingness to talk about some of the tougher questions that I asked him. Mid-interview, his son Ezra walked in from a Cal Youth tennis camp that he had been attending that day, and I've clipped out some of the audio from when Ezra walked in because there's a really interesting bit about 
Professor Brilliant talking about the intersection of university and athletic and the ways that it can inspire youth to try to, to take themselves to a better place. Um, the most important lesson, I think, from this interview is that learning is a lifelong process. And no matter what it is we're doing, we can take lessons from that and apply it to something else we're doing, whether or not it seems related. I want to thank you guys again for tuning in to this episode and supporting me on this podcast. It helps me so much if you guys can leave a like or you can write a review or even just a couple of stars on whatever app, whatever you're, you're using to listen to this, but that would help me out a lot. Anyways, guys, always learn and please, please stay stignatious. Yeah, just watching yeah. for a second. No, no problem. What's up, man? JJ, nice to meet you. I'm Ezra. Nice to meet you, man. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Hey, can you wait here for a few minutes? Just a We're just finishing up a little bit of an interview. So my son Ezra just came back from. Yeah, baseball camp or tennis camp? Awesome. Tennis uh, one camp. of my buddies is on the tennis team from high school. Who? Uh, Nick Barreto. Oh, yeah, Nick has, has given Ezra a couple lessons. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. me and Nick were good friends in high school. Yeah. Still still hang out sometimes. His yeah, younger so brother. Did you guys go to high school together? Yeah, Redwood High School. And, oh, cool. Yeah, Larkspur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, we've uh, we've gotten out there with Nick because he can teach my son much better than I can, <laughs> and and even if he couldn't, he's gonna more listen more to Nick than he's gonna yeah, listen well. to me. So, so yeah, it's uh, he's at the Cal tennis camp and uh, he's at the Cal baseball camp. I think that uh, one of the things about you know that gets lost in you know this whole conversation about athletics and academics at a place like University of California Berkeley is. I think for student, I mean, Ezra's now uh, almost 11, but, um, you know, I don't know how you put a price on something like when you are first, your first exposure to the university is as a six-year-old coming out to Cal baseball camp. Right. And you meet a player at Cal tennis camp and you meet some, you know, like, I want to play baseball at Cal or I want to play tennis at Cal. Yeah. And then that then starts up a conversation around, well, okay, here's what you have to do to get into uh-huh. A place Not like easy. Cal. Here's, and you've got to start now. And I think that that um, should be part of the conversation about how we think about athletics and academics. I think with a lot of kids, I mean, um, I'm sure that he's much happier to talk to you or to Nick than he is to sit around the dinner table with me and my colleagues, right? And he's much more interested in going to Cal to play, you know, through those kinds of uh, interactions. Yeah. And, um, you know... To to, to, to to have that spark of curiosity, you know, lit at a young age and to be thinking about, well, I want to do this at a place like Cal in 10 years' time is, is really important um, and really good. So, all right, well, you know, let's focus on school and let's think about how you're going to balance these two things. So, um, so definitely yeah, something to think super about. Super lucky sure. to have that in, in, you know, in our backyard. Yeah, absolutely. So,